Greetings, children, and welcome to my chamber. My name is Rotherick Gastblood, and I'm your host of Tales from the Dark Chamber. This week, we have a great show for you. Tales to make your skin crawl. Each week, my chambermate and I read a scary tale that we found on the internet, or perhaps left under some corpse. Either way, we think you're going to like it, and we're just dying for you to hear it. So sit right back, light a candle, and let's have a good evening. <laughs> hey, Rother. Hey, what's with the... Maid? Yeah, you never clean in here. Well, it is spring, you know. And I thought we should do some spring cleaning. Uh-huh. But when one cleans, shouldn't one be removing dirt? Why? What on earth do you mean? Well, she's dusting, uh-huh. but putting dust on things instead of removing it. And your point is? Oof, and that smell. I hope that isn't what she's using for window cleaner. Oh, yes. It does smell like... Like nuclear waste dipped in a sewage treatment plant next to a fish cannery. What? You don't like it? Like it? I'm not sure if I can get the smell out of my nose. It's... it's birdie. Oh, Woody, you know what they say. What doesn't kill you only makes you wish for death. Rothrick, that's not what they say. So, who is she exactly? Oh... I answered an ad for some home services in Gould Day, America. She comes with a money-back guarantee. What guarantee? If you aren't completely repulsed, they will refund your money. Well, how much did you spend? Nothing. I conjured her up from the dead. Saved me a fortune. Oh, jeez. So that reminds me of the last bit of our story. Tonight we read part four of Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Seems we have a maid in the inn, and she isn't the kind you would let into your house. Enjoy. Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Part 4 By Sunfred I read Rebecca's message twice. I wasn't sure how to feel after reading the message. On one hand, I felt joy because she shared her family's past with me, and she loved me enough to disclose all that information to me. On the other hand, I was concerned. Concerned for her safety from the clay troopers and concerned that I hadn't told her everything about me. There were quite a few issues from my past that I hadn't told her. Issues I hadn't told anyone, really. I loved Rebecca, but I wasn't sure I wanted to tell her about my past. By the time I had finished reading her message for the second time, we had made it to the highway. The sun was already going down. Just in case you're wondering... Riding a bull with no saddle is painful, mainly on your back and crotch. As we waited for someone to be kind enough to give us a ride, I told Joseph about Rebecca's message. He appeared unsurprised and said Father Hernandez had already told him all that. He also seemed proud to have known that information before I did. He then went on to compliment my trucker cap. During the long journey to the highway, we had come across a black trucker cap which was lying on the ground. The cap had a slightly curved bill in the front, 
with a picture of a silver skull. This front part was caked with dust, which seemed permanently attached to the cap, because I couldn't dust it off no matter what I tried. The back of the cap had innumerable tiny holes, while the top had a small black button. Based on Joseph's reasoning, I had to take the cap because it was to serve as my lucky charm. He told me we ran into so much trouble because I didn't have any form of lucky clothing on me. He also argued that his lucky pants can't do all the work. I took the cap since I didn't want to argue with him because all the time I was still reading Rebecca's message. Besides, the hat really helped me hide my unbecoming facial appearance. The reflection on my phone showed me that my curly black hair was becoming long enough to start flowing down the back of my neck. Black circles were beginning to form around my dark blue eyes, maybe because of the lack of proper sleep for the last two days, and a black unkempt beard now canvassed my cheeks and chin. So I didn't mind wearing the cap because it helped me hide my tardiness and also blocked the sun from my burning face. Joseph had also picked up something on the dirt road. He found a long white cloth that he wrapped around his head like a patka, that headscarf Sikh men wear. Maybe it was to fend off the sun, but truthfully I have no idea why he wore the cloth like that and I didn't care enough to ask. There was still no signal next to the highway, so I couldn't call Rebecca, my parents, or Craig. It took 20 minutes for someone to finally stop and give us a ride. Joseph and I climbed into the back of the blue pickup truck being driven by a nearly toothless old man with long gray hair and a brown farmer's round hat. The bull, Joseph had started calling Bully, strolled back down the dirt road as soon as we got a ride. As luck would have it, the old man was traveling to my hometown. He also seemed to be in a hurry, so he was booking it down the highway. I began thinking that maybe the trucker cap was lucky after all. It took us two hours to get to my hometown. I noticed Joseph paid the old man for the ride with cash. I pestered him on where he got the money because I didn't remember him having that much cash before. He confessed that he took it off the nuns back at the farmhouse. He said the nuns owed us for saving their lives. Once again, I refused to be caught up in a useless debate with him, so I let him be. I tried calling Craig and my parents, but both calls went straight to voicemail. We first took a cab to my parents' house and found no one there. The front door was left wide open, which unsettled my stomach. My parents would never be that careless. We took another cab to Craig's parents' house on the north side of town. The house is mainly painted white with an amber-green roof and has four bedrooms, a roomy lounge, a stylish kitchen with a modern design, and two toilets. So many memories consume my mind as I stared at the house's spacious yard with various fruit trees and well-trimmed hedges. There was a wooden swing on a thick magnolia tree where Craig and I often played as kids. The dandelions Craig's mother constantly takes good care of blossomed in the moonlight, and the well-manicured lawn his father always mowed twice a month on Saturdays was at the standard of a golf course. One thing that was off about the house I had spent so many sleepovers and weekend afternoons was that all the lights were switched off. It seemed as if no one was home. I quickly told Joseph of the layout of the house. He suggested entering through the back while I go in through the front. I wanted to point out to him that this is the same strategy we use at the farmhouse and it didn't quite work well for us, but he had already ran off towards the back. I took out my revolver and approached the front door. I gently knocked three times, but no one replied, 
so I let myself in. I followed a narrow corridor and took the first left which led me to the lounge. There were four people seated on the lounge's long leather couch. It was too dark for me to identify them. They barely moved as I entered. I couldn't suppress the thought that something was not right. Hello, uh, I'm sorry, I let myself in, but I did knock, I said. The people remained motionless. Qualms rolled in my belly as I reached for the light switch and turned it on. The reason these people were not moving or responded became apparent. They were all dead. Craig's parents were dead. My parents were dead. I felt a compression in my chest as I stared at the four bodies in the living room. They were all naked with slit throats. Blood spilled out from their necks to the rest of their bodies. Their stomachs were sliced open and various internal organs were pouring out into the dark green carpet on the floor. Their eyes were gouged out and nowhere in sight. My knees felt weak, my stomach felt hollow, and tears leaked out of my eyes. I lost control of my own body and couldn't move it. My vision was spinning. I felt detached from my body, and my consciousness seemed to be drifting off into space because my whole world had been shattered into pieces. I didn't feel like I was still in that living room looking at my dead parents. I felt like I was far away in the endless abyss of the universe. Even as I heard the yonder sounds of police sirens, and even as Joseph tugged my arm for us to escape, I felt distant. The next couple of events happened so fast, it was almost like flashing scenes of a montage. The police running into the house, pinning Joseph and I to the floor, handcuffs on my wrist, my rights being said to me, riding in the back of the police cruiser, waiting in a windowless room with one metal table and three steel chairs two deputies trying to get answers out of me and throwing all sorts of accusations like how I killed my parents and nuns at the farmhouse a couple of miles from the town. Being shoved into a cell and Joseph joining me later were all events I thought were happening to someone else as I stared on. My mind was so overwhelmed with grief, it was still drifting in space for me to realize the five bikers who were in the cell with us. I finally snapped out of my trance then Joseph pushed me back against the wall and stood in front of me facing the bikers. I noticed two of the bikers were seated on the cell's long wooden bench, and three of them were standing. Four of them were bald as an egg, and one had really long hair like a band member of Guns N' Roses. The bikers all wore black leather vests, drawn red flames on the back, faded blue jeans, iron-tipped black boots, and I realized they were not wearing anything underneath their vests. Their eyes remained glued on us. Joseph leaned back to me. I know that look they're giving us, but don't worry. I won't let them do anything to you. He then spoke up to the bikers. Take it easy, gentlemen. I know what you want. I can give it to you, but please leave my roommate alone. His parents have just been murdered. If you want to rape somebody, rape me. Joseph then yanked down his pants and put his hands in the air. All the bikers turned away in disgust. One of them said, Man, pull up your pants. We aren't going to rape anyone. Really? Joseph asked before he eventually pulled up his pants. Come on, man. We're not like that. Um, your zipper's still open. Oh, yeah, I know. It's broken, but I don't care because these are my lucky pants. Okay, we aren't criminals, man. We aren't even supposed to be here. Us too, Joseph exclaimed. Ha, dumb cops, am I right? 
I'm Savage, the black masculine biker with a dragon tattoo on his neck and a gold bull ring in his nose said. That's Tex, Savage said, pointing at the six-foot-tall guy with dark brown eyes and one arm completely covered with tattoos. Hello, T-Rex said in a voice that really shocked me. His voice was very soft. He spoke like someone who just inhaled a lot of helium. That's Firecracker, Malicious, and Shotgun, Savage continued the introductions. Firecracker waved at us with his bony hand, but I could barely see his face because of his long black hair that draped over his eyes into his chest. Malicious and Shotgun were seated on the bench and nodded their bald heads as they were introduced. They had no distinct features besides the countless tattoos covering their entire bodies and their thick arms were akin to an elephant's leg. Joseph introduced himself and me. He then began sharing with his new friends almost everything about himself and about me. For the longest time, I wanted to slap him to shut him up, but I just let him be. I didn't feel like talking, so I just sat at the far edge of the bench malicious and shotgun occupied. After a while, the sheriff walked into our cell with three of his deputies holding rifles. The sheriff and his deputies wore their hats very low. His round-brimmed hat was obscuring most of his head, so I could barely make out the sheriff's face. I could only see the thicket white hairs sticking out of his long, pointy nose. I could also see his equally protracted chin, which didn't have a trace of beard. The sheriff ordered all of us to line up against one of the walls. Him and his deputies stood opposite us. I could already sense something bad was about to happen, but didn't expect what was to transpire next. The sheriff ordered his deputies to aim their rifles at us. All seven of us began protesting loudly to this great injustice before the sheriff lifted his hat, revealing his blackened-out eyes and furrowed face. The cell was graveyard silent as the sheriff's black eyes stared back at us. It's only then I noticed he was chewing something. He slowly walked towards me and glowered into my eyes. He reached into his pocket and took out something oval. He looked down at it and then back at me. I felt queasy when I realized he was holding an eyeball. It's your fault, he said in a terrifying robotic voice. He threw the eye into his mouth and chewed louder than necessary with this thin lips making a sound like that of two people smooching each other. The words he said were eerily familiar. I had just seen them somewhere. Then I remembered. There were the same words smeared in blood on the television in Craig's parents' lounge. The eyeball this jerk was eating could have belonged to my mother or father. Rage filled my heart and I felt livid. All I could see was red as I jumped at the sheriff. We flew down to the floor and I landed on top of him. I began choking him with both my hands. The deputies had adverted their guns towards me, giving Joseph and the bikers an opportunity to run at them. They tackled the deputies to the floor. I noticed malicious and shotgun quickly ran out of the cell, which the sheriff and the deputies didn't bother locking or closing. I was still wondering why the two bikers had run away when the sheriff punched me on the jaw and I slumped off him. I fell to the concrete floor with blood filling my mouth as the disoriented sheriff stood up. He ran his boot into my ribs and a throbbing pain pierced through my stomach. He then went on to trample my coiled-up body like a burning rag. I had my hands over my head when a liquid was splashed on the sheriff's face. 
Steam emanated from his skin and his face sizzled like bacon in a frying pan. He screamed blue murder as he covered his face with both hands. More water was sprayed on him and white flames burned in his eyes before he puked out black slime and passed out. I noticed Malicious and Shotgun were standing at the cell entrance holding orange and green plastic water pistols, which were probably filled with holy water. The deputies were already passed out on the floor next to small puddles of black slime. I assume they had already been baptized with the anointed water from the biker's water guns. Savage pulled me to my feet and commanded us to follow him and his crew. We ran out of the station, which seemed empty, probably because the deputies and the sheriff were lying unconscious in the cell were the only ones on duty. The motorbikes of the bikers were not yet moved to impound and were lined outside the station. I rode with T-Rex, and Joseph was with Savage as the bikers drove us to a barn-sided cabin on the east side of town. There were more bikers at the cabin. Hundreds and hundreds of bikers. A long line of motorbikes were queuing outside the front porch of the wooden cabin. I assumed this was their hideout place or something. We settled into the cabin and had long introductions with all the bikers there, but I forgot most of their names as soon as I was told. Before leaving the station, I had quickly searched and found my phone and weapons. I stepped outside the cabin and firstly called Captain Ledger. He picked up after two rings. Tell me you have good news, he said. I need your help. So, no good news then? We were arrested and we had to escape from prison. I could hear him deeply sigh on the other end. Couldn't blame him. I should have started the conversation a bit better. But I had no time for pleasantries. Had to get to the point. The sheriff and his deputies were possessed and were going to kill us. Anyway, we shouldn't have been arrested in the first place. I am not sure of the details, but I think we are being suspected of killing my parents and nuns at a farmhouse a few miles from here. Your parents are dead? I'm sorry to hear that. You have my deepest condolences. I swallowed hard and fought back tears as I wasn't sure what to say. There are also dead nuns? Damn it, Stanford. I said no more killings, the police captain stridently said. I swear we didn't do it. You said it yourself. I'm no killer. It's that damn demon. It set us up. Please, contact the town sheriff and clear our names. Preferably after three hours or so when they wake up. You knocked them out? We exorcised them, just like we exorcised the nuns, but we didn't kill them. The police captain took a while to reply. After an agonizing minute, he then said, Okay, fine. I will see what I can do, but... For the love of God, kill this demon before more people get hurt. With that, he hung up. Then I tried calling Rebecca, but she didn't pick up. I was still in the process of trying to call her again when Savage and Joseph came up to me. Savage had already told Joseph that him and his crew are trackers who came to town because they had sensed the presence of a strong demon here. When him, T-Rex, and a part of his crew were scouting the area, the police arrested them on some bogus charge. Savage was already suspecting something was not right with the sheriff. He told me that he came to track the theme, but it could take a couple of days. With the anger that was burning within me, I wanted to find and kill the demon immediately. I communicated this to Savage, and he proposed what he called an unconventional way of finding Bethim quickly. He said he often contacts Besturga when he wants to rapidly find a demon. 
But Sturga is a demon that specializes in information dissemination about hell and demons to people in exchange for favors. The demon loves to play games. I was reluctant to deal with a demon. So was Joseph. However, Savage assured me that the demon doesn't claim souls on the deals because they are of no use to her. The favors she usually asks for are just so she can have fun with humans because apparently we are like toys to her. After a long, hard couple of minutes of debating with myself, I then asked, How do I contact her? Joseph protested and argued that we can still track down Bethim without the help of a demon. But I was too compelled with animosity, revenge, and foolishness that I completely ignored him. Savage took us back into the cabin and brought out a long black rag, drawn several symbols with red paint. I had no idea what the symbols were because they just looked like Chinese writings to me. Savage asked me to step onto the rag, and as soon as I did, he delivered a hard blow to my nose. I fell down on the floor, holding my nose, which was now fountaining blood. My head was thumping with pain, and my trucker cap had flown away from my head. What the hell, man? I heard Joseph scream. We have to spill blood for her to come. And blood spilled out of anger is the one she likes the most, Savage said. This is insane, I said as I stood up with my nose trickling blood onto the rag. Yet it's the only way to summon her. I'm not doing this, I said, stepping back. Do you want to find the demon who killed your parents or not? Savage asked as he stepped forward and threw another punch at me, which caught me on the cheek. This time I staggered back but didn't fall. The rest of the bikers had formed a circle around us and started cheering. I began feeling anger manifest within me. Before I could attack Savage, he was welted by a beer bottle on the back of the head. He fell face down on the rag. Joseph, his assailant, was about to pounce on him when T-Rex bear hugged him from behind and pulled him away from the fight. T-Rex dragged Joseph deep into the sea of bikers, and I couldn't see where the Goliath-sized biker took him. Savage was on his knees, and blood poured out of the back of his shiny bald head. I booted the side of his head, and he fell on the rag. He was now lying on his back and I climbed on top of him. I delivered blow after blow to his face before a feminine voice commanded me to stop. The crowd of bikers quieted down. I looked up and saw a short chubby woman with long black hair tied into a bun. She was standing within the circle of bikers, a few feet ahead of me. She was dressed like a maid. She had a long pink dress with a white apron. She was even wearing light green cleaning gloves. She had big round glasses, her thin lips were red with too much lipstick, and she looked like to be in her late thirties or early forties. Whatever her age, she looked like someone's mother. Her unblinking brown eyes stared sternly at me. The woman was holding a black Lenovo laptop. On the screen of the laptop was a more attractive woman with long curly black hair, smooth skin, green eyes, and a slim model-type body tightly pressed into a long, black, glittering dress. The woman was seated on a chair with her legs crossed. There seemed to be a raging fire burning behind her. I'm flattered you did all this for me, but please stop, the woman on the laptop screen gracefully said. I got off Savage and stood up. I found my trucker cap and put it back on. I could feel your anger and hurt from a mile away, Stanford. Tell me what you want to know, the woman asked. I, the, the demon, you, but Sturga, I didn't know if it was the effect of fighting a biker or my awkwardness with women was coming back, but.
but I failed to speak to her. The elderly woman holding the laptop walked up to me and positioned the computer right in my face. What's wrong? You never call a demon from hell before? She chuckled to herself. Let me guess. You want to know where Bethim is? But Sturga asked. I nodded. I can show you where he is, but you would owe me. Oh, oh, you what exactly? I said, finding my words again. But Sturga laughed. <laughs> I can only tell you that later. The deal was already shady to me, but I was desperate and not in my right senses. So I shrugged off my worry and nodded once to the demon. Touch me, she seductively said. I hesitated moving and briefly looked around me. The bikers were all staring back at me. Go on. Don't be shy, Budsturga said. I placed my hand on the laptop screen and closed my eyes. My mind drifted away and my heart felt a sense of calmness. Images blitzed into my mind and I felt a small migraine. All of a sudden, I knew exactly where to find Bethim. When I opened my eyes, the woman holding the laptop and Budsturga were gone. Joseph ran up to me from deep in the crowd of bikers and asked if I was okay. I told him I was better than okay. I was now hopeful. I asked Savage for a ride back to my parents' house. When he dropped us off, he asked if there's anything else he can do to help. I said no. He had done enough. He gave me his number in case we need it. When we walked into my parents' house, I felt elated for the first time in a while. Seated on the couch and looking comely as ever was Rebecca. She ran and embraced me when she saw me. What is up with the hat? she asked. It's my lucky hat, I replied. A wet sensation on my cheeks made me realize that I had started crying. Rebecca asked me what was wrong. I poured my heart out to her. I told her everything that had happened to me, including the nuns, the bear demon, the bull, the sheriff, and my parents' death, but I left out the part of dealing with Budsturgia. I don't know why I did this. I guess I was ashamed she would judge me harshly, like what Joseph's angry stares were doing. I felt so bad about keeping this from her, just after she had told me all about her family and her past. She offered her condolences and asked about the funeral arrangements. I actually hadn't thought about that, I told her. I was too focused on revenge and killing Bathim. I hadn't really thought of putting my parents to rest. I told Rebecca that as soon as Bathim is back in hell, then I would give my parents a proper burial. Rebecca introduced me to her uncle and the figure with a black ski mask on its head. In her text message, she had neglected to say that T1's ski mask had no holes for eyes or a nose. It was just a woolen mask covering the whole face. I wonder if the first clay trooper could even see behind the mask. Rebecca said she had missed my call, but she couldn't answer because they had ran into clay troopers on their way here. It turned into a bloody fight, but nothing T1 and her uncle couldn't handle. She asked me if I saw her message. I told her I had, but I couldn't go into hiding with her until I find and kill Bethim. She was very understanding and assured me we will find and kill the demon together. I noticed her uncle was annoyed by this, but didn't say anything. I told Rebecca I know exactly where the demon is. Before I could tell her more, my phone began vibrating in my pocket. I pulled it out and felt a lump in my throat. Craig was calling me. Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Part 4 by Sunfred Well, folks, 
That's our story tonight. Rothrick and I hope you enjoyed it. We sure had a great time bringing it to you, and we really appreciate you listening. Tune in next week when we bring you another chilling tale from the dark chamber. And just a note, if you are an aspiring author and you want your story read here on Tales from the Dark Chamber, send us a note at talesfromthedarkchamber at gmail.com. If it creeps old Rothrick out enough, we'll air it. Also, subscribe to our podcast for notification of our next new episode. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel at Tales from the Dark Chamber and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you want your story recorded for your own use or just want to have it, check out my Fiverr gig at www.fiverr.com forward slash Woody underscore G. That's www.fiverr.com forward slash Woody underscore G. Look for the creepy pasta gig. You can order there. And again, folks, thank you for listening tonight.